0: Hello, I'm Amanda Decadene and welcome to V.S. Voices, an original podcast from Victoria's Secret and iHeartMedia. My guest today is a trailblazing voice in the world of cancer treatment. Her name is Dr. Lisa Newman. She's an oncologist and chief breast surgeon at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center in New York City. Lisa's research has taken her to the continent of Africa to better understand breast cancer and why it so disproportionately affects African-American women. It's one of the reasons why Dr. Newman received an award this year from Victoria Secret's Global Fund for Women's Cancer. A small but important reminder for all of you listening today, all recommendations and resources provided here are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Individuals looking to assess their personal cancer risk, screening needs, and treatment options should directly consult with a healthcare professional you know, one of the the phrases that I use with my kids a lot is like, I mean, how important is it? It's not like a life or death situation, is it? And then I was thinking, I'm talking to you today, and you know, you're probably dealing with some kind of life or death situation, but you've taken the time out to talk to me. So I really appreciate it. Ah, uh, that, That's kind of you. Now, any opportunity to chat about breast health
1: awareness, and I appreciate you guys uh, having an interest in getting the word out there and using your leverage to, uh, to educate women.
0: This is yeah, of course. part of this effort. Of course. So many people that I know are affected by somebody that they love or one or two degrees removed it's a subject that, that I personally am really interested in. And actually over the pandemic, I had a sort of undiagnosed lump that I found and went through the process of having that screened and having, um, multiple tests and procedures and everything done to find out that actually it was benign, but you know, it, it was suddenly like, Oh, I could be affected by this. Mm -hmm. This could happen to me. And I realized how uneducated I was. And I'm someone who I consider to be somewhat educated about (laughs) health. And I realized I know so little. And so I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, Absolutely. I know that's a very, very scary
1: experience having to go through that entire workup. And I'm so glad that everything turned out well for you. But I'm also glad that you had a chance to witness firsthand how uh, advanced we've become in being able to evaluate breast problems thoroughly. In the past, it, you know, many breast cancers went undiagnosed for a long time because we didn't have the imaging sophistication that we have today. And today we have so many studies that are available to us to get better characterization of a breast problem and make a much more thoughtful uh, way of getting to the point where we know whether or not a biopsy is necessary. If a biopsy is necessary, we are able to diagnose cancers at earlier stages, and we have much better treatments for them than we had in the past. We've come truly such a long way.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but early detection seems to be key, correct? Yes, that is absolutely true. We've learned a lot about
1: the heterogeneity of breast cancers. It's not just one disease. There are many different subtypes of breast cancers, some of them being much more aggressive than others, but for any of these breast cancers, catching it early is a a really one of our greatest um, strategies in being able to treat that cancer effectively. If you catch a breast cancer early, which means catching it at a small size, when it has, it's less likely to have uh, traveled into the lymph nodes or the glands of the underarm, it makes it more likely that a woman will have a broader array of surgical options And the smaller breast cancers don't have to be treated by mastectomy surgery. We can treat women with breast saving operations for women that do need to undergo mastectomy or for women that prefer mastectomy. And there are some women who do have that preference. We have wonderful breast reconstruction options that we can offer women. Usually that breast reconstruction is done right at the same time as the mastectomy. And today we can usually do procedures called nipple-saving mastectomies. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, which work out beautiful for the majority of cases. We basically save the entire breast skin envelope, and then the plastic surgeon fills in that shell of the remaining breast skin, With whatever reconstruction the patient chose. So it can result in a, you know, a fabulous uh, result cosmetically for the patient.
0: What is the barrier to entry for women going in and getting regular checks done? Because I did hear that there was some talk of lowering the age of mammograms from 50 to 40. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah.
1: Well, no, you are absolutely correct. There is a tremendous amount of ongoing debate, actually, regarding the optimal age at which a woman should initiate screening mammogram, and a lot of that debate here in the United States focuses on average-risk women. So we're talking about women that don't have strong family histories or definite genetic predisposition. For those women, we know that they have to start their breast cancer screening with mammogram, ultrasound, sometimes breast MRI at younger ages. But for- Like
0: what age, what age would you say?
1: So the rule of thumb that we often use in women that have a strong family history of breast cancer is that they should start getting their uh, screening mammograms five to 10 years younger than the youngest age of breast cancer diagnosis if they have relatives diagnosed at age 40 or, or younger. For the average risk women, the general population of, uh, of women, uh, the, there has been for many, many decades, uh, we
0: advocated in favor of women getting their mammograms starting at age 40 and continuing yearly thereafter. See, that's great to know because yeah. i it's a misconception that it's age 50. When you ask a lot of women, well, what age do you start from. getting mammograms? Where does it yeah. come from?
1: Yeah, that comes from the United States Preventive Services Task Force that began a recommendation a few years ago stating that they thought it was safe for women to delay initiation of screening mammograms until they reach age 50. Now, there is a cost to that recommendation. If all average-risk American women wait until they reach age 50, you are going to miss some breast cancers. And you are going to have more deaths from breast cancer. Starting mammograms at age 40 means that you are investing as a population in the expense of doing mammograms in uh, in all of those women at younger ages. And it means that some women will have false alarms along the way where they are found to have an abnormal mammogram that then needs to be further evaluated, perhaps with a biopsy. So currently, there is a tremendous controversy here in the United States regarding the age at which women should start their mammograms.
0: What would you say?
1: Yeah. So I strongly support the recommendations of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network and the American Society of Breast Surgeons. We all advocate very strongly that women in the United States should start their mammograms at age 40 and continue yearly
0: thereafter. Okay, that is good. We have heard it from one of the most reliable sources in the world (laughs) on breast cancer. So that's really good to know. Now you talked about average risk American women. That is excluding African-American women who are disproportionately affected by breast cancer. Why is that the case?
1: African-American women are more likely to get breast cancer with different characteristics we are more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer at younger ages, we are more likely to be diagnosed with biologically aggressive patterns of breast cancer, and we're more likely to be diagnosed with uh, cancers that are bigger, bulkier at the time that they are found. Now, because of the fact that African-American women are more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer at younger ages, this is another reason why I and many of my colleagues so strongly advocate in favor of women getting those mammograms at age, starting at age 40. Because if all women in the United States wait until they reach age 50, you're going to magnify the disparities that already exist in terms of breast cancer mortality between Black women and white women. Because that will mean so many more black women will be getting their biologically aggressive breast cancers diagnosed even later. And African-American women, we represent a population of women that are already more likely to get breast cancer in premenopausal ages. Now, why this is the case that we see disparities in breast cancer burden with black women getting uh, more aggressive cancers and cancers at younger ages. This is also an area of active research. My own research involves looking at the genetics of African ancestry and trying to sort out some of the hereditary markers related to African ancestry that are linked to the development of breast cancer at early ages. And by studying the breast cancer burden, not only of black women compared to white women here in America, but by also studying the breast cancer burden of women on the continent of Africa, we actually have been able to identify some of the hereditary markers that are linked to getting breast cancer at younger
0: age. Getting you've done a lot breast of breast cancers you've done a lot of work studying breast cancer patients in Ghana, yes, and you mentioned your research there and that that had been very insightful and helpful for understanding what those markers are. How have you been able to apply that knowledge to treating women in the U.S.? Yeah.
1: So what we have learned is that the Western Sub-Saharan African ancestry is the link to the patterns of breast cancer that we see in Black women, the biologically aggressive cancers that we refer to as triple negative breast cancers, which afflict us at younger ages. And if you look at women on the continent of Africa, we see quite high rates of these triple negative breast cancers in Western Africa, which is where Ghana is located compared to East Africa. And we also do work in Ethiopia, located on the Eastern coast of Africa. So this points to the fact that our Western Sub-Saharan African heritage is what's putting us at risk for these types of breast cancers. Which makes sense when you look back to the slave trade of several hundred years ago. The transatlantic slave trade brought uh, the ancestors of contemporary West Africans, contemporary Ghanaians across the ocean to serve as slaves. So we have a lot of shared ancestry as African-Americans with contemporary Ghanaians. And by doing genetic studies of African-Americans, West Africans, and East Africans, we've identified particular genetic markers that are likely related to va- genetic variants that were acquired in Africa as a part of evolution really to develop resistance against malaria, which is a very deadly disease in parts of Africa. So the work that we are currently doing is connecting the dots between some of these genetic markers that are linked to malaria resistance and their effects on the mammary tissue by affecting the mammary, the breast tissue immune microenvironment, and causing that the breast kit
0: tissue of the
1: women to be more likely to develop these particular patterns of breast cancer.
0: So it sounds like, and from what I've read and you've spoken about, the incredible advances that the medical industry has made, not only with testing, but also with research, some of which you've mentioned, how is it possible that with all this progress, we still don't have a cure per se, or even have preventative measures? Because even with Mm -hmm. this information, and, and again, I am not educated about this. So I'm asking you based on my own curiosity, why do we not have things we can do to help prevent breast cancer with all this great testing with all this great research and how far away do you think we are from actually being able to get some of that insight and apply it to preventative measures well first of all you sound
1: extremely knowledgeable so you've clearly done your homework.
0: i researched (laughs) you
1: know know what you're talking about It's, it's a pleasure to discuss these these issues with you now It's true that we don't have the magic bullet to cure breast cancer tragically, and we don't have any perfect strategy for preventing breast cancer. But we do have some strategies that are effective in reducing our chances of getting breast cancer. Number one, we know that women who nurse their babies will lower their risk of getting breast cancer. Women, especially women in the postmenopausal age ranges, if they keep their weight under control, if they avoid obesity, if they stay active with a healthy exercise regimen and follow a healthy, balanced diet, that's another strategy for lowering
0: breast cancer risk. Sorry, I want to just pause you right there. Keeping weight lower postmenopausal and maintaining exercise is a contributing factor to diminishing the risk of breast cancer. How is that so? Yeah. Well, obesity, especially in
1: postmenopausal women, is going to be linked to estrogen levels, and it's going to be linked to some hormones that can uh, accelerate the carcinogenic uh, patterns of the breast tissue. So that's probably the mechanism. There may be other mechanisms, but that's the the working hypothesis at this point.
0: I want to ask you about something that I'm sure is quite controversial, but what about underwired bras? Because I have also heard some people say it doesn't make a difference whether you wear an underwire bra at all. And then I've also spoken to people who have said, no, no, there's actually substantial data that shows that wearing an underwire bra can disrupt... Something in the breast tissue and the glands that okay. can. Connect... No. Yeah. no, okay. No. Yeah, just don't checking. worry about
1: the type of brazier Women should just wear whatever brazier is comfortable for them and supportive. That will not uh, influence breast cancer risk. But other things that women can do to lower breast cancer risk over the lifetime would be avoiding alcohol intake in excess. Now there are some cardiovascular benefits to having a little bit of uh, of alcohol here and there, especially red wine. But you want to be balanced. So avoiding excess alcohol will lower breast cancer risk.
0: Why? What does excess alcohol do to increase the risk? Somehow
1: the alcoholic uh, content must alter the hormonal balance of our bodies. And it's been very clearly demonstrated that um, linear increases in alcohol intake will result in a linear increase in breast cancer risk. Now, there are also medications that women can take to lower breast cancer risk. These medications do have side effects, however, and so we don't recommend them to women unless the woman is at clearly higher risk of developing breast cancer. So women who have, who, women should know their family history because family history and evidence of hereditary susceptibility for breast cancer might make you a candidate to take one of these medications. Women that have had past a benign breast biopsies should know exactly what was in that benign breast biopsy because there are some breast biopsies that show all patterns of overactive breast tissue. And women with these overactive breast tissues are also at higher risk for getting breast cancer. And they are candidates for taking these medications that can lower their future risk.
0: These are great questions because as someone who did you know, have to do a, as you said, a workup to find that the, the lumps that was found in my breast was benign. I didn't know those questions to ask. You know, you're just like, oh, I'm fine. Thank God. Great. You yeah. know, you've just given me some more questions to go back and ask. This is really helpful.
1: Yeah, definitely. Very important to make sure that you know your detailed uh, breast biopsy history, know your family history, uh, useful information to protect yourself.
0: Now, Lisa, you obviously spend a lot of time doing research, but you also are a surgeon. And, I'm, and I wanted to just go back to something that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, which is that we've made incredible advancement in the, the way mastectomies are done. And this is a question I had for you. I have um, seen multiple women who have had mastectomies and all of the scarring that I've seen has been brutal and one girlfriend of mine had a double mastectomy and I was so curious why given the sophistication of plastic surgeons and how they work that her scarring was I mean it was so overwhelming just for me as her friend to see it but for her to look at every day it, it was it was a very extreme uh, scar and I'm and I'm wondering why it is that mastectomies often have a very harsh scar, and and why we aren't able to change that?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that your friend did not have a the, the best uh, cosmetic outcome. That's unfortunate, but she should certainly continue with. It being evaluated by her own plastic surgeon or a different plastic surgeon, because there are several ways that a suboptimal cosmetic outcome can be revised and give her the appearance that she would like to have. Uh, sometimes the reconstruction result is affected by the extent of the woman's cancer, and sometimes the cosmetic result is affected by other types of breast cancer treatments that the woman requires. For example, some of the more advanced breast cancers that require mastectomy surgery will also require radiation after the mastectomy and radiation can definitely have an adverse effect on the reconstruction appearance. But again, there are things that the plastic surgeons can do to revise the appearance and to restore the symmetry and give a better uh, result. I also strongly encourage uh, women diagnosed with breast cancer to make sure that they seek treatment in a dedicated breast oncology program where they can avail themselves of the services of people who do nothing but take care of breast cancer all the time, because that will be an advantage in terms of making sure that uh, you're getting all of the the best options uh, that are out there.
0: The women who took care of me and I, I'm just like, you know, one of, hundreds of thousands of women who just got my regular breast checkup and needed follow up with it, but they were so kind and they were so considerate and they were so gentle. And, um, I was thinking about how it was for them to have to work with people who had way more serious diagnosis than me just getting a checkup. And I wonder how that is for you having to tell so many people that they have breast cancer. How do you prepare for that conversation and to hold the space for the people who you're giving that information to? Yeah,
1: that is definitely a very difficult, emotionally charged conversation to have, there's no doubt about it. And it's painful for everybody involved, most of all, the patient, of course. However, one of the really great things about my profession and one of the things that makes it so incredibly rewarding to me is that the majority of breast cancer patients will have a good outcome. And so it's very, uh, absolutely, it's rewarding that I can look a woman in the eye when I am discussing her new breast cancer diagnosis and tell her that we do have the tools to help her beat this cancer. Going through the treatment is never easy. That is for sure, but it is absolutely worthwhile.
0: Mm. I want to talk a little bit about why you chose this profession. I read that you grew up watching the general hospital. Was that your inspo I
1: did. I did. Yeah. Um, I, this is obviously going back a long, long time. Maybe young people like you don't even know what soap operas are. I guess
0: <laughs> I don't know what General Hospital is, but I did when yeah. I read it and saw that you grew up on it. Yeah. Is that like what inspired you to choose this as a profession? Yeah,
1: well, um, growing up uh, after school, one of the ways that my mom and I bonded was that we would watch the soap opera General Hospital uh, every afternoon. And I just thought that being a physician looked really cool and exciting. And uh, the female uh, physician on the show just looked like she had a a great life. So that was my initial spark. As uh, a a black woman, and the case remains for many Black families today, we don't have a lot of um, medical professionals in our extended families. That's just the reality of uh, African-Americans in the United States. And so we do tend to get our um, inspiration or exposure to healthcare professions from atypical sources. We don't get it from our uncles or aunts or grandparents who are physicians. So television is sometimes that exposure for us. So that's how I became intrigued by medicine as a career. My interest in uh, becoming a dedicated breast surgical oncologist, however, evolved many, many years later after I'd already been a physician. And in the first uh, phase of my career as a physician and as a surgeon, I worked as a general surgeon in Brooklyn, which meant that I was taking care of a whole variety of different surgical problems, emergency room surgeries for trauma, uh, benign and malignant uh, surgical problems like gallbladder operations, appendectomies, but I was also taking care of a lot of cancers. And as a woman, many women, in my community did gravitate towards me because they wanted to have a woman physician taking care of their breast problems. And in Brooklyn, this is going back now to the 1990s, I just became very intrigued by seeing this repeated pattern of my black breast cancer patients being diagnosed at strikingly young ages and having the bulkier, more challenging tumors. And so I wanted to become involved with research to try to address the, the answers to those questions of why this was the case. And that's what what motivated me to pursue a career in academic surgical breast oncologist oncology. So I did fellowship training in surgical oncology and my career has been devoted to breast cancer management ever since.
0: Thank you for the dedication that you have and the time and the research and the insight that you've given to this specific issue. In interviews, you describe a lot of healthcare disparities that Black women face, and this is something that we know, but not widely. How much of this is a problem which you would consider medical versus political, social, or economic?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a combination of the two, and uh, the two different aspects of the definition of racial ethnic identity, race as a socio-political construct versus race as a true uh, genetic biologic entity, they're really not mutually exclusive. And it is true that because of systemic racism over the past several hundred years in in, in, uh, North America, that African-Americans, have higher rates of poverty. We are more likely to live in uh, communities that have poorer public school systems, and that has downstream effect on higher education prospects, on employment prospects. All of those things play in together, such that African Americans have uh, poorer access to healthcare and a whole host of adverse health issues. So. Racial ethnic identity definitely is a sociopolitical construct, how society labels us, how we identify ourselves, influences how we live, where we live and how we access healthcare. But racial ethnic identity is also associated with some of the ancestral genetics that we discussed previously. And some of these ancestral genetics related to African ancestry In this case, in the setting of breast cancer, the relevance of Western Sub-Saharan African ancestry, these genetics also play a role in cancer and in particular breast cancer biology. So it really, both aspects of uh, race need to be addressed comprehensively when we're trying to understand breast cancer disparities.
0: According to the Association of American Medical Colleges, only 5% of physicians in this country are Black or African-American. I'm wondering if you have a point of view of how we can begin to change that. Because as you said, you became interested in this work as a woman of color who was treating women of color and understanding that, that, that connection. However, if there are not only 5% of physicians are Black or African-American, there's a huge gap there. Yeah, and it's a tragic gap. It's
1: tragic uh, for many reasons. Um, we, there are data showing that uh, physicians of color are more likely to gravitate towards diverse practices where they are caring for more diverse patients. There are abundant data indicating that patients of color want to have uh, physicians that reflect their own background. And in general, I think that all patients, regardless of their own racial, ethnic identity, they will feel more trusting of a healthcare workforce that reflects their community. Have a very homogeneous group of physicians and a diverse patient population. That mismatch is going to result in suboptimal communication between physicians and patients. And that's never good. It's also true that if we continue with a very uniform, homogeneous physician profile, with the bulk of those physicians being white males, then we're missing a whole pool of talent and brilliance in the diverse population of young people and talent and creativity that we could be tapping into so that we have a stronger and even more powerful physician workforce and oncology workforce, research workforce. We are um, cutting off our noses despite our face if we don't wrap our arms around this problem and improve the diversity of our workforce. And I realize that that's not an easy problem to tackle. There are a lot of um, social, societal ills that need to be corrected in order for us to take care of the pipeline problem that exists. But it is something that we, we have an obligation to work on. Pipeline programs where we encourage young people at the grade school level, the high school level, college level, to get them interested in healthcare so that they aren't necessarily relying on television to be exposed to uh, the medical professions and to the sciences. These pipeline programs are things that we can do right now to engage more young people in pursuing healthcare professions. A lot of people look at us and just say that since the physicians don't reflect their own communities, they have less of an interest in, uh, in pursuing that profession.
0: It makes sense. And also so important that somebody like yourself is visible because as we know, many people have said they cannot be something that they cannot see. And for you to be visible with the work that you do, you are, you're, creating a path that did not exist previously, which is my definition of a trailblazer and that you're creating a path for other women of color and women to look at you and say, Hey, I want to do this. I'm interested in this. I care about this. If she can do it, I can do it.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for those comments. I certainly hope that I can uh, serve in the role of being um, somebody that, that inspires the young people of color to pursue healthcare uh, oncology as a profession. And I can honestly tell all the young people that I encounter that this is a great profession. It is very noble and it's exciting. And I wake up every day feeling that I'm going to the best job in the world
0: during your career, or even as you were growing up, who were the voices that you looked to, that inspired you to become the woman that you are today? Uh, well, oh boy, there are
1: so many strong, incredibly brilliant uh, women out there um, in my own circle, of course, my mother, my sister, who tragically just passed away from triple negative breast cancer um, a couple of months ago. I'm sorry huge uh, role models for me and uh, tremendous sources of inspiration and uh, support. Um, Shirley Chisholm, uh, another uh, trailblazer in American politics, uh, more contemporary, Oprah Winfrey, of course, who isn't inspired by Oprah Winfrey, uh, Tina Turner in the music industry, another incredibly strong, powerful women, there are so many women out there in all walks of life showing that we are strong, powerful, creative, and we know how to get, get the job done.
0: Lisa, I'm sorry to hear about your sister and her recent passing. Would you be comfortable if I asked you a question about what that experience was like for you?
1: Sure. Yeah. No. That's that's totally fine. In uh, many ways, I still feel as though so, um, an opportunity to to um, talk about it uh, is is part of the healing.
0: So obviously, treating, being having the knowledge and the experience you have with treating women with breast cancer, what was that experience like for you when your sister was diagnosed? It was just uh, nothing
1: less than uh, horrific. And my sister's experience with breast cancer was particularly um, dramatic and and devastating. She was quite suddenly diagnosed with um, widely metastatic triple negative breast cancer and it actually made itself apparent because of neurologic symptoms from brain involvement. My sister was a brilliant, brilliant woman. She was um, a federal prosecutor, uh, had a very, very high-powered job. And then several years ago, when she stepped down from working as a federal prosecutor, because she wanted to help take care of my mom, uh, by the way, who had a, a severe stroke at the time. But when she stepped down from being a U.S. prosecutor, she took on a whole new profession of being a school, a teacher in the New York City public school system teaching troubled high school kids. And she was doing this job every day, right up until the time that she was diagnosed. And then just like overnight, she displayed these neurologic symptoms. And within a day and a half, she um, was completely uptunded and the cancer was widely metastatic. And yeah.
0: I'm it, so sorry. That must have been uh, two and a half months, two and a half months. I'm so sorry. So
1: these are the types of breast cancers that we have to, we have to get rid of all breast cancers as a threat to women, but these particularly virulent ones that hit black women disproportionately, we, we have to get control of this.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you for sharing all this incredible insight and wisdom and tools. And, and thank you for sharing the story about your own sister. I greatly appreciate that. And I'm really pleased we got to talk. And I hope we can support the incredible research and work that you continue to do.
1: Thank you so very much. Debbie was such a giving person and she was actually always very supportive of my research. So I know that she would want her story to be used in a positive way to educate other women. And uh, all of my research uh, is, is in her name at this point.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful, wonderful to talk with you. You have been listening to VS Voices. My thanks to today's guest, Dr. Lisa Newman. If you love our show, please comment, like, and subscribe to wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And as always, please follow me, Amanda Decadene, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. As part of Victoria's Secret's ongoing commitment to become one of the world's leading advocates for women. Their partnership with Pelotonia and AACR is enabling them to support a new generation of female scientists in the field of cancer research. Building on the $21 million already raised to support this work, this year, VS have announced five scholarships of $100,000 each to be awarded directly to five female cancer researchers every year. The work of today's trailblazing guest, Dr. Lisa Newman, is supported in part by Victoria's Secret Global Fund for Women's Cancers. Thank you for listening.